broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. This is Sam Edwards, proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network, SurreyFarms.com. Well, hello, this is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and this is Chef's Story, brought to you every Wednesday at noon from beautiful Roberta's in downtown Bushwick, Brooklyn, and this is the Heritage Radio Network.com and .org. They just got their nonprofit status, and so we're so excited about that. But if you hear somebody saying .com and .org, don't get confused. Uh, both work on the um, on the internet. So today, let's get to it. I have one of the most exciting chefs cooking anywhere in the world today, Floyd Cardoz. You 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 probably know him because he won Top Chef. Masters. He wasn't just on Top Chef Masters. He won Top Chef Masters in 2011. Some of us really remember him as being a groundbreaking chef back in 1998 when he opened Tabla and brought in a whole new vocabulary for us, a whole new set of eating experiences like a bread bar. And now he's really charting new territories down in the tip of Manhattan um, in the sites of the new um, financial district down there at uh, North End Grill. And so I am incredibly pleased and honored to have him here at our table. And Floyd, welcome. Authority, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here, too. (laughs) Well, I just want to dive right in and start finding out how you became this amazing chef. And I know you were born in in India, in Bombay, and you lived in Goa. So why don't you tell me about those early years and, you know, what, what was your passion when you were a kid? And did food have anything to do with it? Um, you know, my mom, when I was a kid, always said that most people uh, eat to live, I live to eat. And that hasn't changed all these years. Um, always been passionate about food, always loved to eat, always hung out in the kitchen with the cook. But uh, growing up in India in the 60s and 70s, you never really thought about being a chef or going to this business. Uh, most Indians want to be doctors or engineers or you know bankers. And that's what I thought I was going to be. And everything I did in school and did my bachelor's in, uh, in biochemistry, my master's in biochemistry, and thought that's the line I was going to take. But, you know, from an early age, uh, my grandparents lived in Goa. Uh, so that used to be... So tell us the difference between Bombay and Goa geographically yeah. and taste-wise. Uh, you know, Bombay is the New York City of India. Uh, Goa yeah. is... Uh, what I call it, it's it's very different. Uh, we call it the paradise. It used to be a Portuguese colony. Uh, so the food, uh, in, in India, the food is very regional, like in Italy, like in Spain. It doesn't cross over. Uh, so if you're in, say, Goa, if you're in New Delhi, or you're in Bangalore, or in Calcutta, or wherever you may be, the food is of that region. Bombay got the food from all the regions because that's where all the immigrants went from India. Oh, 
So you left Goa, you left Delhi, you left Haryana, you left Kashmir. Wherever you were, you'd leave and go to Bombay because, like London of old, the streets people thought were paved with gold mm-hmm. uh, because it was the capital of Bollywood, the financial mm-hmm. capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the British uh, head, the East India Company, was based in Bombay too. So my father left Goa, went to England, got studied in England, and my mother and father lived in Bombay. But the parents, my grandparents, all lived in Goa. They had, we had two homes in Goa, and it was traditional every year to go down for the entire summer to spend time with them. Mm. Uh, so they influenced us. So our family was a very food-centric family. So all discussions revolved around what the next meal was going to be or what the current meal is. Mm-hmm. And we would set a table and enjoy it. And it, 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 it made, you know, my best memories growing up are of these meals sitting with granduncles and grandaunts and grandparents. Well, you, you said that Goa was a Portuguese colony, yeah. and you're arguably the most famous Indian chef in the world. And your signature style is being able to bring Floyd's flavors, which are heavily influenced by India, to uh, very Western dishes. And did when you ate in Goa, was there Portuguese influence in the Indian food? Was that the first fusion Indian uh, food that you saw? I think it was, and I don't really think that people in India at that point thought about it. Uh, and the food we ate at home, too, we had a go and cook. Uh, Dad was educated in England. So the food we'd make was very fusion if you will because mm-hmm. we'd have spice and everything mm-hmm. everything had a lot of flavor to it but we'd make english stews or we'd make a pasta dish mm-hmm. uh, it would be very different from anything you'd see in italy yes uh, but it still used ingredients which are very foreign to india uh-huh. uh, but you know bombay was about 300 miles from goa north of goa on the coast so the seafood was common so people from goa naturally moved to bombay the food in goa most, when I grew up, most of the people in Goa were Catholic because of the Portuguese. I'm Catholic. Uh-huh. So we were the only religious group in India which ate pork and beef. Oh. Uh, a love for seafood. Uh-huh. Use of alcohol in our, in our cuisine. Use of vinegar. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, the Portuguese, actually the Portuguese did bring vinegar to India. They also bought bread making. Uh, European style breads are made in Goa. Uh-huh. They've been adapted to the cuisine in India now, which are very different. And mm-hmm. there's a term called pawala, meaning someone who sells bread, which was used as a, a real derogatory term for anybody who came from Goa because we ate European-style bread and we did uh-huh. eat flatbreads. Oh. It's, oh. So, you know, you grew up in this environment. So n- coming, uh, well, we're going to ask how you came to the United States, yeah. but it wasn't a foreign cuisine at all to you. In no, that it, sense. it was not. And we enjoyed delicious food at home. One meal was Goan, and the other meal would be something different. Describe a Goan dish for us, a typical uh, Goan dish that would be um, unique to Goa. You know, Goa had, being on the coast, had access to a lot of seafood. And uh, what happened in India at that time was that there was no electricity, there was no running water, there was no refrigeration. So if you lived on the coast, that's all you ate was seafood Mm -hmm. uh, or the meat you ate was what you grew. Mm -hmm. As you went to the center of India, Mm -hmm. uh, you didn't eat that much of seafood. Mm -hmm. So being on the coast, we had a lot of coconut, we had a lot of rice, Mm -hmm. a lot of seafood. So we'd have these wonderful coconut curries with seafood. Uh, or things grilled. You know, my grandmother's kitchen had this wood fire mm-hmm. using coconut wood, which would p- 
permeate the entire coconut hall. Coconut wood. So that's the husk of that's the That's the husk, the branches, the trees that they cut down. Oh. And the aroma was fantastic. As a matter of fact, when I go back now and I get this aroma of this wood burning, it reminds me of being in a kitchen all those years ago. Mm. And, and then they used earthen pots, so the food got some of the smoke in there. Uh, they'd use water that they draw from the well, which was in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And above the fire, which was these open fires that they put wood into, would be the rack where they'd dry the Goan-style sausages that we call choriz. Oh, from chorizo. Uh-huh. From the Portuguese. Uh-huh. And the only sausage you could get in India of any kind was, was choriz, made by the Goans who were influenced by the Portuguese. Oh, my God. So you're, you're truly a Mediterranean Indian. <laughs> yeah, they, we'd, you know, we'd use olive oil in our food. Yeah. We'd use bacalao. Uh-huh. Uh, my grandmother's favorite dish was a dish of bacalao. She always spoke about it, yeah. what the Portuguese brought to India. Mm-hmm. And, you know, using dry uh, fish besides cod, but we'd use you know, all the other local fish that were dried, and we'd make curries from that. Uh, I don't think that was there before the Portuguese came and showed mm-hmm. us how to use these mm-hmm. dried ingredients. Mm-hmm. Uh, but using alcohol in stews like this pork stew we do, it's called it's called sarpatal, which actually uses the blood of the pig in the stew, mm. which is not done anymore. But the meat was cut; it was smoked over these, you know. So it's it's you know smoking is not very traditional Indian, but mm-hmm. it was incorporated into these stews that the Portuguese made. Mm. We'd make beef curries and uh, beef asad, which asad is a very Portuguese term, which if you go to Brazil, you see the same thing over there. Asado. Amazing. So this connection was, was, was very, very strange. But, you know, that's the kind of food we ate growing up. So if your father was educated in England and you grew up in uh, Bombay and, yeah. and in Goa, how did you get to the United States? Uh you know, just going back to my global Indian flavors, mm-hmm. being that I was in Bombay, we had access to all these cuisines. So mm-hmm. you'd have cuisines from all over India. And because of my love for food, mm-hmm. I recognize all these flavors. So that's where that came from. Mm-hmm. So after I, I, gra- I did my graduation uh, in Bombay, while I was doing it, actually, I, at St. Xavier's College, I read this book called Hotel by Arthur Haley. And I was very taken up with the whole hospitality world. Mm. And that's when I decided that I think this is what I wanted to do. So I went and told my father, told my parents. How far along were you educated at this point in biochemistry? I was, I was almost done. Oh, and with your master's? Yeah. And yeah. you say, I want to go and work in the hotels? Yeah. Oh. And uh, so I finished. I went to school for hospitality. And while I was doing hospitality. In, in know, Switzerland? In, in Bombay. Oh, in Bombay, in Bombay. first. Okay. But you got to understand that while I was growing up, I used to make these souffle omelets for breakfast on Sundays. Uh, I'd do barbecues for my friends in the backyard. We'd go fishing in the Arabian Sea. We'd catch fish, bring it home, skewer it on wooden sticks, and, and cook it over wood fires in the backyard, get potatoes, throw them in the fire. So I would do these things, uh, do what we call barbecues, where we'd marinate chicken and charcoal grill them. Oh, sounds delicious. And uh, when I was doing this, I, I was also in hospitality school, and part of hospitality school was I had to do front of the house back of the house and while I was doing back of the house I kind of started enjoying what I was doing and strangely enough my food tasted the best from everybody else's uh, what I, was that I, I just think because I loved food so much and I was so passionate about it I was putting something of myself in there I understood the ingredients mm. I did my first internship in the kitchen to get it out of the way and when I did that is when I realized that this is something I really really love to do 
uh, you know, I was in a kitchen, and you got to understand, I grew up in Bombay where everybody spoke English. So mm-hmm. I barely spoke any Hindi. I went into a kitchen where nobody spoke English, where everybody was uneducated, and I was working 16 hours a day, five And you days. were working shoulder to shoulder with shoulder them as, shoulder. A, as a cook? Yeah. With these guys who didn't speak a word of English, who 16 hours a day, six days a week, not making any money at all, and I was having a good time. What kind of restaurant was it? It was in the Taj Mahal Hotel in Bombay. Oh, and, uh, and was it an Indian restaurant? It, it was. I was working in the main kitchen, which yes. did the banquet. So there was a soup section, an entremetier, and a rotisserie, and poissonnier. Yes. So these are all the guys, Gamoshay, Butcher. So I was working with all these guys uh, and just having such a good time. So when did you, you went to La Roche in uh, Switzerland? For so after I graduated, I went and joined the chef's training program at the Taj Mahal Hotel. And while I was there, I realized that I had no life outside of work uh, because this was not a business that people wanted to get into or recognized. <laughs> and it was kind of depressing because I didn't have friends. I couldn't go out. I couldn't, you know, so there was no life. And I realized that my brother was in, 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 in the West and he said, you should go away because it's very different in the West. Mm-hmm. So that's when I decided to go to La Roche. Uh, just to get out of India. So how long were you in Switzerland? I was in Switzerland for a year and a half. And how? what was that experience And it like? was, you know, for me it was eye-opening because you could go into any restaurant and no matter what you did, people didn't really care. What uh, do you mean? It was, you know, if you're a chef, that's great. If, you're, if you pick up garbage, that's great. But as an India's class society at that time, oh. you know, we paid people to cook for us. Yes. You know. In Europe, that wasn't there. It was, it was in the chefs were paid well and the restaurants were great and it was celebrated. It was, you know, um, and, and for me, that's when I realized that I cannot go back to India because this is what I want. Mm-hmm. I had to go back because I wanted to stay in Switzerland, didn't get a visa, went back to India, then I came in 1988, 80, 89. 89 to the United, United States. States. And why, why did you choose the United um, States? My brother was getting married. And he's here? Here. And he sponsored me to come here. Oh, was and he in New York? He was in New York. And when I was in Europe, he told me, why don't you come to Switzerland? I had dreams of going to Australia. Ah. Oh. And I... He said, why don't you come to Switzerland or New York? United States. Oh, United States. Okay. But I wanted to immigrate to Australia. Why? And I just felt that that was a new country. It was more like England. We grew up closer to England. Ah, yes. You know, being a colony. Yes. And I... I filed my immigration papers, was supposed to leave in April of 88 or 89, I don't recall. I didn't fill in the paperwork correctly, so it got delayed. Brian got married. He said, why don't I come to the United States? I came to the United States and felt like, wow, this is just like Europe, you know, in the way people are respected and Mm -hmm. the restaurants. So Mm -hmm. that's when I decided to stay. Culinary capital of the world, I think. I (laughs) totally believe you. Now, at least. Um, All right. Well, you know what? We have to take a break right here but we are going to come back and talk about another interesting chapter in your life so this is chef's story and we'll be right back program was sponsored by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Summertime is not the only time when barbecue is welcome. At S. Wallace Edwards and Sons, Sam Edwards has been working his magic on ribs, briskets, pit-cooked pulled pork, and much, much more. Add a few of their sides and the party is complete. <laughs> 
Entertaining has never been so easy. To order, go to virginiatraditions.com. Well, welcome back. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and you're listening to Chef's Story. And today I have one of the most uh, dynamic chefs uh, working today, not only in New York City, but I would say in the world. It's Floyd Cardoz. Uh, and you may know him from uh, winning Top Chef Masters last year. But uh, he's better known and been written up very much these days because he's opened a new restaurant called North End Grill, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But I want to go back to his early days in New York. He came, he said he came to New York in 1988, 89, and he opened a real seminal restaurant called Tabla in 1998. So, Floyd, can you tell us what happened between 1989 and before you opened uh, Tablo? Who did you work for, and how did you get involved with Danny Meyer and the Union Square Hospitality Group? I uh, worked in, in a couple of small restaurants in, in Manhattan when I came because it was hard to find a job without New York experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, Were they Indian restaurants? Yeah, with the Indian restaurants, mm-hmm. and I worked in a couple of hotels just to get mm-hmm. my foot in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then I heard of Grey Coons uh, at the St. Regis, which was reopening, in the early 90s, uh, a, a restaurant called Lespinas. Mm. And my brother worked with Gray at the Peninsula Hotel. Oh, really? So he made the connection, and with Gray's love for spices and Asian flavoring, it was a natural fit. So I joined Lespinas uh, when it restaurant. first opened. Mm. Uh, I worked there for seven years, um, started off as a salad cook, and left as a chef de cuisine. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, and over the years, I learned a lot from him. I... Uh, you know, New York at that time was was booming, and the mm-hmm. restaurant, you know, doing fine food, three star Michelin. Uh, and Gray star. Gray had grown up in Switzerland and worked with Giraudet, but had spent a lot of time in Asia. Did he not? He in, grew up in Singapore. I think he grew his up in father Singapore. Was, uh, oh. based in Singapore and uh, lived in Hong Kong. Uh, at the peninsula in Hong Kong. So he knew, understood those flavors very right. well. But he was a Swiss national, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And, so. and, and for me it was a great mix because yes. I always had this dream about mixing Indian and and Western foods from mm-hmm. the time I started cooking. Mm-hmm. So I worked with Gray, rose up through the ranks, and um, you know, we never know what good you do for someone, how it's going to affect your life in the future. Exactly. And, um, and the way I met, met up with Danny was... Uh, um, I had a cook at uh, Lesperance named Nick, uh, a wonderful guy who graduated from uh, the Culinary Institute of America and came and worked in our kitchens. And even though I wasn't a sous chef at that time, I was a line cook like him, he was told he had to make a consomme. And he was struggling badly with it, and the French sous chef was not willing to help him. Uh, <laughs> So uh, when Nick was making this consomme and not succeeding, I said, Nick, let me show you how to make it because I'd made them many times in India. Mm-hmm. And um, so I taught Nick how to make a consomme uh, mm-hmm. from scratch and told him what the pitfalls for and what he needed to do and what to look out for. And this is what you do to make it better, not so good. And, and you know, he never forgot that. Uh, after two years, he left and joined Gramercy Tavern uh, as a line cook. And he went through the ranks and became a sous chef at Gramercy Tavern in the front room when Tom was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he heard that Danny Meyer and his partners had found the space on Madison Square Park and they wanted to do something with Indian food. So Nick Oltash went up to Danny and said, if you want to do something with Indian food, there is this guy I know who's Indian. You shouldn't open a restaurant with Indian food without talking to him. 
He's was that was the executive sous chef at that time. He's the executive sous chef at Lespinasse, and you'll be making a huge mistake if you don't talk to him. Wow. So uh, I, I thought, you know, perhaps you knew Danny some other way, but it was truly, oh, and, what a great and story. And then I get a call from Danny's office saying he wanted to meet up with me. Would you be interested in talking to him? So what was that like, your first meeting with Danny Meyer? Because uh, he, was, he was legendary even back then. You know, my first meeting with Danny was uh, in the basement of Gramercy Tavern in his corner office. And I was working mornings that that month that my schedule was morning. So I told him I could meet him till like 8.30 or 9 in the evening. Uh, as a sous chef, you'd go in at six and you wouldn't leave till seven or eight. Mm-hmm. So I went to see him after work, and I never, I never forget because he was so unpretentious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his office was, you know, like a, every person's office. Mm-hmm. You know, the stuff that was menus and there was baseball memorabilia everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I still hadn't gotten to baseball at that point in time, <laughs> but I still remember that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a very good conversation we had. Uh, for an hour, uh, one did he one. talk food? Did he talk uh, hospitality? He, what did he, he talk? I think he was just trying to figure out who I was, mm-hmm. because I think uh, you know we believe in our company that you have to be what we call a fifty-one percenter. What does that mean? That means that uh, your technical abilities should form forty-nine percent of who you are, and fifty-one percent is your niceness factor. That is something you can't teach people. You can't fake that. That's Either true. you have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And if you have it, then you can be a great person for hospitality because you want people to be happy because you care. Mm-hmm. And caring is not something you can teach someone. Mm-hmm. It comes from your upbringing from the day you were born to what your parents teach you. Do you remember any of those questions he asked you just to find that nice factor? You know, one of the things he asked me that I'll never forget was uh, he asked me what my strengths and weaknesses were. And... Uh, I don't know what I said for my strengths, but I said my weakness was my family. So he turned to me and says, why is that so? And I said, because I'll do anything for my family. And he turned to me and said, that's not a weakness. He said, that's a strength. Mm-hmm. And that's the one question I always remember because mm-hmm. uh, when I hire people now, you know, I work for chefs who something happened with your family, you can't take the day off. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you had a death in the family, the first question is not how you are, but when you're coming back. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the rules that I have in my kitchen are not when you're coming back is, mm-hmm. you know, just take what time you need mm-hmm. to take care of the issue. And then when you're ready, you'll come back mm-hmm. because I want you to be 100 percent doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I want you to give me what's in your soul every single day because mm-hmm. that's when the food's going to taste good. So tell me, how excited were you about Tabla? You know, when Tabla opened, uh, I didn't ever realize how big it was going to be. Really? I didn't ever realize how many articles were going to be written about me and this restaurant. Uh, I didn't, it never ever got to me that I'm opening one of the most anticipated restaurants in New York City in 1998. Uh, I was focused. uh, I just wanted to cook good food and be a chef that cared about the people who work for me. So how did you conceive the bread bar, for example? The bread bar actually came as a later iteration of Tabla. Uh, I always knew what I wanted to do upstairs. Uh, Explain. You know, the food upstairs was going to be classically either French or European-based with Indian flavors. 
uh, everything had spice in it, everything had strong flavors in it, and but it was going to be refined. It wasn't going to be hit you over the head with heat or with grease or a piece of meat that you don't recognize or something that's stewed or, or an ingredient that is purely Indian that nobody knows about. I was going to take ingredients that were from the United States, from the Northeast, that people recognize like wild striped bass and black sea bass and lobster and crab meat and and uh, you know zucchini blossoms and and things that you grow up with heirloom mm-hmm. tomatoes mm-hmm. you know you don't have heirloom tomatoes in india but i was going to adapt what we ate in india to what we had here mm-hmm. so that's what upstairs was going to be plated it was going to be fine dining I obviously came from a four-star restaurant uh, i didn't want to do a four-star restaurant but i wanted it to be nice and we were lucky enough to get three stars right out of the bat when we opened the New York Times. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than that. That that was huge. It still, it still did not affect me because friends would come into my restaurant and say, "Aren't you proud of all this? Doesn't this affect you?" And I'd say, "Of what? Mm-hmm. Look at this restaurant. There's so many people in here. They all want to eat your food. Mm-hmm. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm happy they're here, but it's so, it's. So tell me, North End Grill. Yeah. Where here we are, oof, 14 years later, and you have this beautiful, brand new restaurant down in Battery Park City uh, on North End Avenue. What, how is it different from Tabla, and where is the Floyd of Tabla in North End Grill? See, the uh, issue with Tabla after years passed by, uh, which, which got to me sometimes, was that people thought and wanted only Indian ingredients and Indian dishes in the menu. So it, it kind of closed the way I could cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I cook at home, I got two kids who didn't want to eat Indian or Indian-influenced food every single day. They want to eat Japanese, they want to eat Chinese, they want to eat Italian, Spanish, English, or whatever you have, Chinese. They want to have something different every single day. Mm-hmm. And I could not use soy sauce at tabla. I could not use truffles at tabla. I couldn't use, oh. uh, you know, if I made pasta, it had to be Indian-influenced. So I couldn't do things that I would cook for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll that cook for you too. Yeah, sure. so it, it, it kind of kept me on the straight and narrow. Mm-hmm. Whereas now at Northern Grill, I have the whole palette of what I cook at home, of what I want to eat, and how I want to cook. So I can choose to add Japanese ingredients in something, like I have uh, a raw tuna with wasabi in there. Uh, you know, yeah, there is some of Floyd in there because I, I think one of my friends told me he says there's nobody who uses heat like you do mm-hmm. as a flavoring rather than as heat. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do. That's the Floyd, mm-hmm. the excitement of using, you know, the balance of sweet, sauce, spicy, bitter in a dish. Tell people how you flavor watermelon. Um, I, I think that's one of my favorite things that you do. That just it was so revolutionary to the me. The watermelon curry. Yeah. Um, actually, I've been asked to put it on my menu. So um, <laughs> I was. This is a story that as I cooked at home with my son, and this is not Indian at all, but it was from a story from me he wanted watermelon I was cutting it for a snack and he asked me would you eat everything with spice and I said yeah he said would you eat watermelon with spice and I went back to my father eating black pepper on his watermelon so I came up with this curry using watermelon juice bringing it down seasoning it with a bit of ginger cayenne black pepper and cumin uh, and it has this bright it looks like tomato but it has this intense and then finishing it with lime yes. so you get the sweetness of the watermelon the acid of the lime the heat from the cayenne and a little bit of bitterness from the cu- from the cumin, so it brings it all together, and it's topped with lime segment. So, it's it's that's the way I cooked. It's got texture from the rice krispies on the fish, 
Uh, so you get the soft from the watermelon, you get the the crispy from the rice. And I think when you have all these textures in a dish, and that's what I do, is and I, I don't have to think about it. It just comes naturally. So okay, it's summer. Watermelons are coming back. I want everyone to write in and insist that Floyd put this on the menu at North End Grill. Oh my! So, um, what uh, what do you expect? I mean, you you from your team. Um, you, here you had this team at Tabla for over ten years, and uh, wh- who came back with North End Grill? Is the team different? Are you different? Uh, let's start with me. Yes, I am different. Uh, I've matured a lot. Uh, I think opening this restaurant for me was a lot easier than opening Tabla because. Uh, I understood that when I opened Tabla, I wanted everything to be perfect. And when you open a restaurant, nothing can be perfect because <laughs> it changes. It's so fluid. Uh, so going into this, I knew that would happen. So at times when I would well, freak Explain out, that to people. You know, it's it's pretty standard. You cook food in the kitchen. You've got servers outside. You have a lunch menu and a dinner menu. Why is it so different every time you open a restaurant? Uh, first, your guests are different. Uh, your meal periods are different the seasons are different your equipment is different your staff is different Uh, their design is different it's not the same design that you had you know I could walk through Tabla with my eyes closed and know where things are and put them down Mm -hmm. you have to figure out where am I going to put the salt where am I going to put my oil that I'm going to cook where do I put the oil from the pan Mm -hmm. Uh, oh I didn't think of it where do we put plates down? What happens to the clean plates when they come out of the machine? How is your equipment different? You know, uh, I have two wonderful pieces of equipment that I absolutely love at Northern Grill. Oh, here it comes. Favorite equipment. Yeah. I love this question. One is a wood-burning grill. Uh, well, that's what's so interesting about a wood-burning grill. A lot of people the, have. The interesting part about this wood-burning grill is that I have two wheels on the grills, the two grills that I can lower and raise oh. the grilling surface. So it's not always at one temperature. And the other thing I do is I don't put wood in. I let the wood light up, turn to embers, and then I move the embers over. So I'm not using high heat to encrust anything. So it gets a gentle smoke. Mm. It takes a lot of babying. It's good food should. Sounds like shades of Goa here. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. And you get that aroma, and we use that wood fire, the Mm. wood smoke to flavor. You know, we did squash, squash puree. Mm. In January, where we were holding it when we were lighting the fire, so it gets a little bit of that smoke. Mm. Um, we do, I do a turbo at this restaurant, which the day I ate it, I think it's the best dish that I ever eat, I've ever eaten because it's a turbo on the bone mm-hmm. and it's grilled on this embers with a little bit of smoke, and it takes us about twenty-five minutes to cook. Really, that long? That long, because we do it low and slow, oh. and it's the moistest kissed by smoke mm. piece of fish and all we put on it is olive oil salt and a grilled lemon and you eat it the way you want it still on the menu it's still on the menu okay we're going and i think it's <laughs> going to stay for a while and i ate grilled fish in spain where they eat it with bread and we have this wonderful bread that we're serving from a bakery in brooklyn called Biancuit, uh, and they have a miche which is 72 hours uh, fermented and the sour bread this wonderful crust and this Oh, it's so good. Oh. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're going to have to take a break. I want to continue eating here <laughs> with my memories here. Um, so we'll be right back. We're going to take a break.
Okay, so we're back again. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and you're listening to Chef Story on Heritage Radio Network.com or .org. And today's guest is Floyd Cardoz of North End Grill, and many people know him from Tabla, the executive chef, the opening chef, and also the winner of Top Chef Masters last year in 2011, which we're going to talk about a little later in the program. Uh, but Floyd, we were talking about equipment and extraordinary uh, pieces that you have in your new restaurant, North End Grill. Uh, any other uh, pieces that you want to tell us about? There is this, this uh, we have two more of these. It's called the Jasper Oven. Jasper. And it is originally from Spain. Mm-hmm. And Michael Romano, when he went to Europe, he saw them and he said, you got to put this in your restaurant. And I'm like, okay, someone else is telling me to get this piece of equipment. Now, Michael's a chef, and he was uh, at Union Square Cafe for many years. Many, now. many years. Yeah. He's a partner in the company, and he's oh. very talented. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we all are chefs. We have our own opinions. Mm-hmm. And Michael said, research this. It's really good. So I researched it, and uh, it's made in the United States, now by Woodstone Corporation in, in Washington State. What's and, so special about it? Uh, it's Well, it's it's a charcoal grill oven. So it's a totally enclosed piece of equipment where you put charcoal in and you light it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has a door and it has two shelves, grill shelves. Mm-hmm. So you put, you can do, we do pizzas in there, we do vegetables in there. But you put charcoal in once. And it, it reminds me pretty much of a tandoori oven being that you have to control the heat with the two vents. You can't let it burn and leave the vents open because it'll burn out eventually. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to put charcoal in the middle of service because it gets that unburned charcoal flavor. So mm-hmm. you have to play with it, which is what we figured out. Mm-hmm. But the reason I chose this piece, uh, you know, there was a place in Virginia where they told me when I called the company, said, why don't you go and play with it? I said, I don't know what it is. I'd love to go and see it. And I went there. And the first thing I see is this oven is roaring at 900 degrees. And they put something in there and it comes out as charcoal, totally burnt. And I told these guys, I said, I think you guys are using this wrong. Let me show you how I think this could work. So we shut the dampers down. We cut the oxygen out and dropped the temperature down. And I cooked a fillet of black sea bass in that. I didn't know how it was going to react. It was the first time I was working it. And I was blown away at how moist it turned out. What? I mean, what what caused that? The 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 oven is totally enclosed, so the moisture stays inside. So it's almost like a convection steam combi kind of thing. So whatever steam comes out stays in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a dry heat. And it sears the, the piece of fish. It gets a little bit of smoke. But when you cut it, it's like almost like butter. And as a matter of fact, sometimes when you cook halibut in there, it looks like it's sous vide the way it looks. It doesn't get the color. Really? And it's, it's moist. It's tender. It's not dry. Now, you were just talking about the turbo going low and slow. Yeah. This sounds like it would go fast. If this is very fast. In three minutes, you can put a fillet in and have it cooked. So, you were, low and slow sounded like the ultimate. Now, this fast and quick sounds like the ultimate. How, well, how do the two cooking techniques work? The low and slow works with something that has skin and bone, so it retains some of the moisture from those elements of the animal. Mm-hmm. If you're cooking a fillet, it doesn't have the bone to protect it. So the longer oh. you keep something in the oven, mm-hmm. we've all done shrimp on the grill, which have dried out. Right. Because it's been on too long. Oh. So this cooks it pretty quickly, retaining the moisture, giving a hint of the smoke from the charcoal, 
uh, at the same time not coloring it. I see. So what are you cooking in there right now? We are doing, I'm doing a wild salmon in there. I'm doing wild striped bass that I actually caught this weekend in Connecticut. A renaissance uh, man, a fisherman. Uh, <laughs> we're doing shrimp. Uh, I'm doing pizza. I, you know, these are two pieces of equipment that I've never had before. So whenever an ingredient comes in, we cook one on the grill and one on the Jasper oven and see which one works better. I did strawberries in the Jasper. Not so good. I did them on the grill and I oh, love really? them. Oh, really? So now I'm doing, you know, I do asparagus in the Jasper. Uh-huh. It works in the grill and the Jasper. I did quail on the grill, but it was taking too long. So now I'm putting it in the Jasper and quail works beautifully the you're gonna have every chef you know around the country when they come to new york coming and saying can i come in your kitchen can i can i play with these grills you know i i, I tell all my chef friends come and see this because i'm such a huge fan of that mm. you know mm. but it's 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 a great piece of equipment to have okay well you know i want to get to the, we could talk all day about uh, your food but i, I want to talk a little bit about top chef masters where you really did floyd's food and floyd was cooking um First of all, why did you put yourself out there? I mean, I, I think that's one of the scariest things, to be an accomplished, you know, respected chef, and then on national TV, put yourself to the test. What made you do it? Uh, you know, the request for Top Chef Masters came at a point in my life where we had decided to close Tabla. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, uh, a low point in my life in terms of having this restaurant for so long mm-hmm. and then closing it so uh, they had asked me to be on Top Chef before and I said, you know, I don't think I'm ready. For, I'm not for that show. I'm mm-hmm. more experienced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when Top Chef Masters came, it's a group of your peers. Mm-hmm. We're playing for charity. Mm-hmm. You know, that's always something that gets me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are people who are established who are not going to backstab and try to win this at all costs for no reason at all and say mm-hmm. things. And, you know, I had the time free to do it. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I'd never watched the show. <laughs> so I, I watched, you know, Top Chef occasionally. Mm-hmm. But when this came up, I said, I spoke to Danny and he said, you know, you have the time off. I spoke to my wife and she says, you should do it. So, so what was it like? What, you know, what was the first show like? What, what, what surprised you uh, most? What surprised me the most is that we, actually two things. Uh, one, as a chef, you're always in control. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you tell people to jump and they'll ask you how high. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're on a TV show, that control is not with you. Mm-hmm. So you are at the mercy of the producers because they understand TV. You don't. Mm-hmm. So the biggest thing for me to embrace was losing that control. Mm-hmm. The second thing was I couldn't believe how fast that damn clock went. <laughs> really? Even for a professional chef who's used to working we, we at used warp to, speed. You know, <laughs> we, we have our own clocks that help us get ready for lunch service and uh-huh. dinner service. But on TV, it's not, it's different. So the first day, a bunch of people didn't get the, the, first, the first challenge we did. There were a few people who didn't complete the dish. Is that because professional chefs are used to having a team behind them? Uh, yes and no. We just weren't. Uh, where how fast the <laughs> clock went I think that was the biggest thing nobody realized how fast the clock went because we didn't go get plates mm. you know it was it's a new kitchen it's a new ingredient it's, it's a bunch of things But mm. so that was the surprising thing mm-hmm. uh, but getting to see you know I was cooking side by Tracy Deschardin seeing what an amazing chef she is mm-hmm. I always knew she was mm-hmm. but just watching her work mm. that to me was the prize 
mm. in doing the show. Mm. Watching Mary Sue, watching John Currents, watching uh, George Mendes, mm. you know, people who were on my side, mm-hmm. watching them do things. Uh, you know, for me, it was like, wow, these guys are really, really cool, and they're nice people. Yeah. You know, we all do events all over the country. We fly in, we do our events, we fly out. Mm-hmm. We have no time to really but, spend. But we had time to spend and get each other's philosophies and enjoy. So that was a great part of doing the show. Um, mm-hmm. Why do you think you won? You know, I was asked that question a lot before the show. Uh, why I would win, and I think the reason I won was I. I said, I'm a nice guy. I, I care for what I do. And that translates into my food. Uh, but you just it, said that all the other people were really nice, too. Th- they were, too. Uh, and, and for me, it was not about winning it. I never ever thought about winning it till the last episode when I was standing at the finals. Then I said, wow, what if I win? I never ever thought that. I just, I just wanted to be true to who I was. And mm-hmm. that's what I did every single time. I didn't go out of who I was or what I was going to do because I wanted to be who I was. That has taken me to where I am today mm-hmm. and I don't want that to ever change. Mm. You know, I care for food, I care for people, I care for my cooks tremendously. I care to make people happy. I want you to feel the passion I have every single day on that plate. It translates. It really yeah. does translate. You, you want that. <clears throat> have you ever met a mean chef that was successful? Uh, I'd say in the early 80s, late 80s, a lot of the European chefs were mean. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them had to be mean because that's the system they came up with. Mm. And, and how has that changed? And why has it changed? I think your Union Square Hospitality Group really uh, has a lot to do with it, but their philosophy. I, I also say it's with the chefs, too, because we were kind of tired. You know, I was tired of being beaten up. I was tired of being unhappy. You know, you can tell. If someone's not happy cooking, it the salt is not right, the pot is a little burnt, uh, the color of the peas are a little yellow, uh, the balance of flavors is not there, and you can tell that. But if you have the joy in your heart, you can do it well every single day, and that's what you want because f- food and eating is so personal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just putting a perfume and walking up, putting it, you know, and say, "Oh, that's my personality. I wear these jeans." No, it's not. You're, mm-hmm. you're ingesting it. It's, it's a very personal thing. When, when you're mentoring young cooks in your kitchen, what's your philosophy? What do you tell them? You know, when I hire people, uh, I look for passion. I look for why you're cooking. If someone says, I want to be top chef, I, I don't really want to hire you. I want you who talks about my grandma's ravioli mm-hmm. or the time you went fishing with your dad and mm-hmm. what you did with the fish mm-hmm. or the meal you had in a small restaurant in Chinatown or in Spain or in Germany or wherever you may have gotten and it's not a three-star Michelin place and why you think it was so good and what it did to you. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of people I want. So when they come in, in my kitchen, there are no bad questions and most kitchens don't like mistakes. I'm the same, but if you do make a mistake, I'm not going to kill you. Uh, what I want you to do is I want you to learn from that mistake so you don't make it the next time and understand why it went wrong. So I'm always teaching people. Mm-hmm. Chefs know? have to be teachers. You, you have to teach. You have to tell them why don't you want high heat? Why aren't you using tomatoes in the middle of winter? You know, Why is this tomato broken in the middle of summer because we had a wet season? Mm-hmm. You know, Little things like that which help you understand the flavors and get the most out of it. Mm. 
It, so talking about a flavor and a passion, because we don't have much time left. I have a passion right now th- for 10 weeks in this summer, and it's called Forshoe Lobster. And uh, it comes from my grandfather's village up in Nova Scotia, and you're going to be using some. So tell me, what, how are you gonna how are you gonna prepare the lobsters, and uh, why are you gonna use a foreshoe lobster? You know, I, I had the pleasure of going on a trip to to Foreshoe Bay. I think that's what it's called uh, on this lobster trip with you, and I was blown away at how sweet those lobsters were. Uh, I've always been a fan of Nova Scotia lobsters. Mm-hmm. And people from Maine would always get on my case and say, what do you mean Nova Scotia? I think because of the cold waters, mm-hmm. uh, it makes for a sweeter lobster. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that the lobsters are kept in the water, and when they come down, they're not tanked, and you mm-hmm. get them fresh. Mm-hmm. So they're very close to what they are in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, they cook up incredibly sweet. Uh, so... When I had them the first time, I couldn't believe they were better than any other Nova Scotia lobster I had had. But the beauty of these lobsters is that I'm going to cook them in my grill. In my Which jos- one? Yeah, I'm going to cook in the Jasper. In the Jasper, okay. And, and normally you don't want to cook lobsters on fast heat. No. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to cook it in the shell. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to cover it with seaweed to prevent it from getting that strong heat, but also getting some of that ocean flavor in there. Mm-hmm. And just serving it as is, with nothing on it. I, you know, you don't even need butter with a four-shoe lobster. Okay, well, we're winding down here. Last words of wisdom to anyone who wants to be a chef out there. What, what should, what's the most important element of being a chef? Um, I think, I tell my kids this all the time. Well, no matter what you do in life, you have to be happy and you have to be passionate about it. Nothing in the world beats happiness and passion from doing something you love every single day. And you have to give it 150% every single day. You have to be ready for long hours. But the joy you can get from putting food that is incredible, and it doesn't have to be complex, but just putting something from your soul on that plate every single day, nothing can beat that. Well, thank you, Floyd. Uh, and I want to thank all the listeners out there. I think you, we've just had a delicious hour here. And uh, this is Chef Story. I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton. And I want to thank production assistants Heidi Tickle and Joe Sevier. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next Wednesday at noon on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.